Chapter Thirty Six of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Neefit means to stick to it. There was some business to be done as a matter of course before the young squire could have all his affairs properly settled. There were debts to be paid, among which Mr. Neefit stood certainly first. It was first in magnitude and first in obligation. But it gave Ralph no manner of uneasiness. He had really done his best to get Polly to marry him, and luckily for him, by the direct interposition of some divine providence, as it now seemed to Ralph, Polly had twice refused him. It seemed to him, indeed, that divine providence looked after him in a special way, breaking his uncle's neck in the very nick of time, and filling a breeches-maker's daughter's mind with so sound a sense of the propriety of things as to induce her to decline the honor of being a millstone round his neck, when positively the offer was pressed upon her. As things stood, there could be no difficulty with Mr. Neefit. The money would be paid, of course, with all adjuncts of accruing interest, and Mr. Neefit should go on making bridges for him till the end of the chapter. And for raising this money, he had still a remnant of the old property which he could sell, so that he need not begin by laying an ounce of encumbrance on his paternal estates. He was very clear in his mind at this period of his life that there should never be any such encumbrance in his days. That remnant of property should be sold, and Neefit, Horsball, and others should be paid. But it certainly did occur to him, in regard to Neefit, that there had been that between them which made it expedient that the matter should be settled with some greater courtesy than would be shown by a simple transaction through his man of business. Therefore he wrote a few lines to Mr. Neefit on the day before he left the Priory, a few lines which he thought to be very civil. Newton, 9th December, 1860, blank. My dear Mr. Neefit, you have probably heard before this of the accident which has happened in my family. My uncle has been killed by a fall from his horse, and I have come into my property earlier than I expected. As soon as I could begin to attend to matters of business, I thought of my debt to you, and of all the obligation which I owe you. I think the debt is one thousand pounds, but whatever it is it can be paid now. The money will be ready early in the year, if that will do for you, and I am very much obliged to you. Would you mind letting Mr. Carey know how much it is, interest in all? He is our family lawyer. Remember me very kindly to Miss Polly. I hope she will always think of me as a friend. Would you tell Bawa to put three pairs of breeches in hand for me? Leather. Yours very truly, Ralph Newton. The wrath of Mr. Neefit on receiving this letter at his shop in Conduit Street was almost divine. He had heard from Polly an account of that last interview at Ramsgate, and Polly had told her story as truly as she knew how to tell it. But the father had never for a moment allowed himself to conceive that, therefore, the thing was at an end, 
and had instructed Polly that she was not to look upon it in that light. He regarded his young customer as absolutely bound to him, and would not acknowledge to himself that such obligation could be annulled by Polly's girlish folly. And he did believe that young Newton intended to act, as he called it, on the square. So believing, he was ready to make almost any sacrifice of himself, but that Newton should now go back, after having received his hard money, was to him a thing quite out of the question. He scolded Polly with some violence, and asked whether she wanted to marry such a lout as Moggs. Polly replied with spirit that she wouldn't marry any man till she found that she could love him, and that the man loved her. "'Ain't he told you as he loves you ever so often?' said Neefit. "'I know what I'm doing of, father,' said Polly, "'and I'm not going to be drove.' Nevertheless, Mr. Neefit had felt certain that if young Newton would still act upon the square, things would settle themselves rightly. There was the money due, and as Neefit constantly said to himself, money was a thing as was not to be got over. Then had come upon the tradesmen the tidings of the old squire's death. They were read to him out of a newspaper by his shopman, Waddle. I'm blessed if he ain't been and tumbled all at once into his uncle's shoes, said Waddle. The paragraph in question was one which appeared in a weekly newspaper some two days after the squire's death. Neefit, who at the moment was turning over the pages of his ledger, came down from his desk and stood for about ten minutes in the middle of his shop, while the hair ceased from his cutting and Waddle read the paragraph over and over again. Neefit stood stock still with his hands in his breeches pockets and his great staring eyes fixed upon vacancy. "'I'm blessed if it ain't true,' said Waddle, convinced by the repetition of his own reading. News had previously reached the shop that the squire had had a fall. Tidings as to troubles in the hunting field were quick in reaching Mr. Neefit's shop. But there had been no idea that the accident would prove to be fatal. Neefit, when he went home that night, told his wife and daughter. "'That will be the last of young Newton,' said Mrs. Neefit. "'I'm damned if it will,' said the breeches-maker. Polly maintained a discreet silence as to the air merely remarking that it was very sad for the old gentleman. Polly at that time was very full of admiration for Moggs, in regard, that is, to the political character of her lover. Moggs had lost his election, but was about to petition. Neefit was never called upon in the way of his own trade to make funereal garments. Men, when they are bereaved of their friends, do not ride in black breeches, but he had all a tailor's respect for a customer with a dead relation. He felt that it would not become him to make an application to the young squire on a subject connected with marriage till the tombstone over the old squire should have been properly adjusted. He was a patient man and could wait, and he was a man not good at writing letters. His customer and future son-in-law would turn up soon, 
or else the expectant father-in-law might drop down upon him at the moonbeam or elsewhere. As for a final escape, Polly Neefit's father hardly feared that any such attempt would be made. The young man had acted on the square, and had made his offer in good faith. Such was Mr. Neefit's state of mind when he received the young squire's letter. The letter almost knocked him down. There was a decision about it, a confidence that all was over between them, except the necessary payment of the money, an absence of all doubt as to Miss Polly, which he could not endure. And then that order for more breaches, included in the very same paragraph with Polly, was most injurious. It must be owned that the letter was a cruel, heart-rending, bad letter. For an hour or so it nearly broke Mr. Neefit's heart, but he resolved that he was not going to be done. The young squire should marry his daughter, or the whole transaction should be published to the world. He would do such things and say such things that the young squire should certainly not have a good time of it. He said not a word to Polly of the letter that night, but he did speak of the young squire. "'When that young man comes again, Miss Polly,' he said, I shall expect you to take him. I don't know anything about that, father, said Polly. He's had his answer, and I'm thinking he won't ask for another. Upon this the breeches-maker looked at his daughter, but made no other reply. During the two or three following days Neefit made some inquiries, and found that his customer was at the moonbeam. It was now necessary that he should go to work at once, and therefore with many misgivings he took Waddle into his confidence. He could not himself write such a letter as then must be written, but Waddle was perfect at the writing of letters. Waddle shrugged his shoulders, and clearly did not believe that Polly would ever get the young squire. Waddle, indeed, went so far as to hint that his master would be lucky in obtaining payment of his money but nevertheless he gave his mind to the writing of the letter. The letter was written as follows. Conduit Street, 14th December, 1860 blank. Dear Sir, Yours of the ninth instant has come to hand, and I beg to say with compliments how shocked we were to hear of the squire's accident. It was terribly sudden, and we all felt it very much as in the way of our business we very often have to. As to the money, that can stand. Between friends such things needn't be mentioned. Any accommodation of that kind was, and always will be, ready when required. As to that other matter, a young gentleman like you won't think that a young lady is to be taken at her first word. A bargain is a bargain, and honorable is honorable which nobody knows as well as you, who was always disposed to be upon the square. Our Polly hasn't forgotten you, and isn't going. It should be acknowledged on Mr. Waddle's behalf that this last assurance was inserted by the unassisted energy of Mr. Neefit himself. We shall expect to see you without delay, here or at Hendon, as may best suit but pray remember that things stand just as they was. Touching other matters, as needn't be named here, 
orders will be attended to as usual if given separate yours very truly and obedient thomas neefit this letter duly reached the young squire and did not add to his happiness at the moonbeam that he should ever renew his offer to polly neefit was as he well knew out of the question but he could see before him an infinity of trouble should the breeches-maker be foolish enough to press him to do so he had acted on the square in compliance with the bargain undoubtedly made by him he had twice proposed to polly and had polly accepted his offer on either of these occasions there would he now acknowledged to himself have been very great difficulty in escaping from the difficulty polly had thought fit to refuse him and of course he was free but nevertheless there might be trouble in store for him he had hardly begun to ask himself in what way this trouble might next show itself when neefit was at the moonbeam three days after the receipt of his letter when he rode into the moonbeam yard on his return from hunting there was mr neefit waiting to receive him he certainly had not answered mr neefit's letter having told himself that he might best do so by a personal visit in conduit street but now that neefit was there the personal intercourse did not seem to him to be so easy he greeted the breeches-maker very warmly while pepper cox and mr horsball with sundry grooms and helpers stood by and admired something of mr neefit's money and of polly's charms as connected with the young squire had already reached the moonbeam by the tongue of rumour and now mr neefit had been waiting for the last four hours in the little parlour within the moonbeam bar he had eaten his mutton-chop and drunk three or four glasses of gin and water but had said nothing of his mission mrs horsball however had already whispered her suspicions to her husband's sister a young lady of forty who dispensed rum gin and brandy with very long ringlets and very small glasses you want to have a few words with me old fellow said ralph to the breeches-maker with a cheery laugh it was a happy idea that of making them all around conceive that neefit had come after his money only it was not successful men are not done so rigorously when they have just fallen into their fortunes neefit hardly speaking above his breath with that owlish stolid look which was always common to him except when he was measuring a man for a pair of breeches acknowledged that he did come along old fellow said ralph taking him by the arm but what'll you take to drink first neefit shook his head and accompanied ralph into the house ralph had a private sitting-room of his own so that there was no difficulty on that score what's all this about he said standing with his back to the fire and still holding neefit by the arm he did it very well but he did not as yet know the depth of neefit's obstinacy what's it all about asked neefit in disgust well yes have you talked to polly herself about this old fellow no i ain't and i don't mean twice i went to her and twice she refused me come neefit be reasonable 
A man can't be running after a girl all his life when she won't have anything to say to him. I did all that a man could do, and upon my honor I was very fond of her. But, God bless my soul, there must be an end to everything. There ain't to be no end to this, Mr. Newton. I'm to marry the girl, whether she will or not? No, how, said Mr. Neefit, oracularly. But when a young gentleman asks a young lady as whether she'll have him, she's not a-going to jump down his throat. You knows that, Mr. Newton. And as for money, did I ask for any settlement? I'd a-been ashamed to mention money. When are you a-coming to see our Polly? That's the question. I shall come no more, Mr. Neefit. You won't? Certainly not, Mr. Neefit. I'd been twice rejected. And that's the kind of man you are, is it? You're one of them sort, are you? Then he looked out of his saucer eyes upon the young squire with a fishy ferocity which was very unpleasant. It was quite evident that he meant war. If that's your game, Mr. Newton, I'll be even with you. Mr. Neefit, I'll pay you anything that you say I owe you. Damn your money, said the breeches maker, walking out of the room. When he got down into the bar, he told them all there that young Newton was engaged to his daughter, and that by God he should marry her. Stick to that, Neefit, said Lieutenant Cox. I mean to stick to it, said Mr. Neefit. He then ordered another glass of gin and water, and was driven back to the station. End of chapter 36 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina